independent journalism alive and KPFK Radio Strong. Become a Sustainer Circle member of KPFK by pledging at any level. per month, whatever suits you. This is Verdeen White of Earth, Wind & Fire, encouraging you to make your tax-deductible donation today at 818-985-5735 or kpfk.org. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, LA Unified students will be able to carry Norcon on school grounds. Warrior style policing with civil rights activist attorney Connie Rice. Talking points with Hal G. Lore on California independence or keep the Democrats in power. European Union lawmakers are divided over the supply of deadly weapons to Ukraine. South Africa is considering declaring a national state of disaster over its acute energy crisis. Close of the 7th annual summit summit of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states. CELAC is closing last week. Residential upzoning fails to reduce homelessness. All this and more. Good evening. I'm Angela Birdsong. The LA Times is reporting today that a Costco store is projected to be built in the Baldwin Village area of South Los Angeles. The five-acre lot at 5053 Coliseum Street near La Brea is projected to have 1,800 apartments and 184 units meant for low-income tenants equaling 23% of the total units. Those low-income units will be used for those with Section 8 housing eligibility. The planned project, which would be undertaken by developer Thrive Living, a Los Angeles-based national real estate development and investment firm, is also slated to provide 400 jobs to the South Los Angeles community. However, it is not clear if those jobs will be new opportunities solely for residents of the immediate area or if current Costco employees from other stores will be eligible to transfer to the new site. The Times is also reporting that students will be able to carry Narcon, a nasal spray that can reverse an opioid overdose in L.A. Unified Schools under a soon-to-be-updated policy. The move announced to school board members in a message from Superintendent Alberto M. Carvalho comes amid continued alarm about the dangers of illicit fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that has been consumed unknowingly by teens and counterfeit pills that look like Xanax or Oxy. Carvalho wrote to board members Tuesday that Los Angeles County Department of Public Health supports a clarification in LA Unified policy that would allow students to be able to carry Norcon in schools and that a policy bulletin was being updated and will be reissued shortly. Carvalho said to board members, Norcon cannot be used to get high is not addictive and does not have any effect on a person if there are no opioids in their body. Nor, he wrote, are there any long-term consequences from using it in emergency situations. Deadly overdoses have spiked among U.S. teens even as illegal drug use has waned in that age group. Researchers have found the result of increasingly dangerous drug supply. In Los Angeles County, 92% of teens who died of drug overdoses in 2021 tested positive for fentanyl, a county report found. 
31 youth died from fentanyl overdoses in that year in L.A. County. According to the Ventura County Star, the locally based Amgen Corporation cut its workforce with a recent restructuring that led to about 300 layoffs. The Thousand Oaks-based biotech company has not, however, said if the layoffs, which represent about 1.3 percent of its close to 24,000 employees, are based in the Thousand Oaks headquarters, where Amgen employs about 5,500 people. The biotechnology giant is Ventura County's largest private employer. The Daily News says that Mayor Karen Bass's Inside Safe initiative, which seeks to get homeless people off the street, is expanding as workers reach out to unhoused individuals at two or more encampments, one in South L.A. and one in Del Rey on the west side. The latest efforts are underway near West 87th Street and Western Avenue in South L.A. area, represented by Councilmember Marquise Harris-Dawson, and near Culver Boulevard in South Slauson Avenue and Del Rey, represented by Councilmember Tracy Park. Unhoused individuals are bo- at both locations have accepted temporary housing and motel rooms where they should receive services and case management support to help them transition to permanent supportive housing, the mayor's office said in a news release. As part of the initiative, outreach workers have also been sent to homeless encampments throughout the city, such as Cahuenga Boulevard near the 101 Freeway underpass in Hollywood and Councilmember Nithia Raman's district, and then to Venice, part of Councilmember Park's district. In recent news, related news, City News Service is reporting that homelessness has increased in Los Angeles by an average of 18%, according to a year-long count conducted by the RAND Corporation. According to RAND, the study is the largest count of unhoused people in Los Angeles outside of losses. Tally. Researchers researchers attributed certain declines to city-authorized cleanups of encampments, but noted that the numbers came back up quickly. Among the individuals surveyed, the most common answer for why unhoused people were not living in housing included never being contacted, privacy and safety concerns, and issues with paperwork. The Guardian newspaper, based in Manchester, England, is reporting that Southern California Police Department is facing national backlash after footage revealed that officers fatally shot a double amputee and wheelchair user who appeared to be hobbling away on the ground before he was killed. The Guardian's U.S. Bureau says that Anthony Lowe, 36, was killed by officers in Huntington Park last Thursday. Cell phone footage captured part of the incident, showing Lowe on a sidewalk next to his wheelchair, appearing to try to flee as two officers approach him with weapons drawn. More police cars arrived as the officers followed Lowe, who seemed to be limping away, but the video did not capture the shooting. Now Lowe's family is calling for officers to be terminated and face murder charges. Lowe was father of was a father of two and one of eight siblings in a tight-knit family, and he had been struggling recently after he had to have both legs amputated, his family said. The circumstances preceding the killing are unclear and officials have faced scrutiny as their narrative appears to shift. The Huntington Park Police Department said in a statement that officers were responding to reports of a stabbing allegedly committed by someone in a wheelchair around 3.40 p.m. on Thursday and that they encountered Lowe, who was in a wheelchair and who they believed was a suspect. The department claimed that officers attempted to detain him, alleging he ignored commands and threatened to advance or throw the knife at the officers although the limited witness footage did not capture this. The department further said that officers deployed two separate tasers in an attempt to subdue the suspect, but when tasers were ineffective, they shot him. He was pronounced dead at the scene. 
the L.A. Sheriff's Department, which is investigating the killing, said in an initial statement that Lowe attempted to throw the knife at the officers, but a spokesperson later told the L.A. Times that Lowe did not throw the knife ultimately, but he made the motion multiple times over his head like he was going to throw the knife. The spokesperson also said that two officers had fired roughly 10 rounds at Lowe, who was hit in the torso. The Huntington Park Department does not use body cameras. The Guardian's report was published today as mourners gathered in Memphis, Tennessee, for the funeral of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, killed by police officers after a traffic stop for reckless driving. Lowe's killing by Huntington Park police occurred as activists continued to demonstrate and protest over police killings during the past month, including the tasing death of Kenan Anderson, the cousin of Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Colliers in Venice. A spokesperson for the L.A. Sheriff's Agency, which has its own track record of police violence and misconduct scandals, told media that the officers who fired at Lowe were on leave for a few days, would undergo a psychological evaluation, and would be assigned to administrative duties as they were approved to return to field work. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Connie Rice, civil rights activist and lawyer, talks about American policing. Ethnic Media Services speaks with her. Connie, can you, can you talk to us about what are the reforms, what are, what, are the, what, is, what are the changes we need to implement on the system of policing, obviously now in crisis in this country? Yes, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with everybody today. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I, there, there are two things that have to happen. I know a lot of people are saying ban certain techniques, get accountability infrastructure, uh, kind of make police more accountable. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, there's a whole list of reforms. And I think that what I would ask people to do is, is go 10,000 feet out further to look at this system. So American policing descends from the slave patrols, and it's a suppression containment policing that's done to populations that are not meant to be part of the mainstream. So in slavery, you had to keep the slaves on the plantation. The slave patrols did what they call suppression containment. Um, it's also what was done to the Jews in the Jewish ghettos in Europe. And, and and so when you have a system that is actually designed and descended from slavery, it's so deeply embedded in the DNA of American policing that their job is to keep black people in their place and away from white people and wealthy people. And so out of that policing, you paramilitarize it and you get, uh, you get aggressive warrior search and destroy policing that serves the larger policy of mass incarceration. So it is a toxic system. It's not about bad apples. It's about a toxic orchard, the entire culture, the entire mission. If you don't change the mission, the mission is to make sure that black people don't come out of the ghetto, that Latino people stay in the barrio, that Native Americans stay on the reservation. When, when policing has as its mandate the suppression containment of a population, you get what you see in American policing. So if you get better training, it's better training for mass incarceration policing. And I don't think the people are asking simply for the end of, of murder, police murder with impunity, or, or politer search and destroy. I think what is that they're, they are revoking their consent for aggressive enforcement and they're demanding safety, which is not enforcement. They're demanding safety for the poorest of the poor in the highest crime zones. And they're demanding the investment, the refunding of the vitality of those communities. You have to do both. You have to fix your police, which means you have to change their mission and you have to change their culture. They have a warrior culture of impunity and it has licensed the murders that you see and the shootings of unarmed African-Americans 
uh, African-American men mainly, uh, by, by police. So you've got to fix two things. It's not enough to change techniques. It's not enough to do implicit bias training. It's not enough to take away their chokehold or their tasers. It's not the weapons. It's not the training. It's the mission, the mindset, and the, uh, the policies that they enforce. Um, thank you for your comments. Um, so how feasible is it to um, demand uh, the removal of, um, you know, weapons of destruction like guns um, away from the police force? Is that something you would consider as, um, uh, as a preliminary step to correct? I don't think that, um, well, well, let me put it this way. I don't think that I don't think politically you could do that. I don't think it's a viable strategy. I think that if you have police officers with the right mindset and the right connections to the community and they're doing the kind of safety, not, not, not policing, but delivery of safety that's done in partnership with the community. In other words, if the cops are doing what the local community wants, you don't see these kinds of problems. You see very few officer-involved shootings. And the ones that you do see are of people who were a danger to the community. It's not just rounding up every kid of color in baggy pants and having uh, police where they're armed with weapons of mass destruction from wars. I mean, the LA Unified Police, for example, asked if they could accept bayonets. And my question to them was, which children are you going to bayonet? Uh, it's gotten that kind of crazy. But you, it, disarming police is not going to work because we ask them to risk their lives in serious situations. Um, what we're asking for is you need the warrior kind of policing in very limited circumstances. About 5% of police calls involve rape, murder, robbery, uh, danger, true dangers to community members. My clients who live in Watts, Los Angeles, and in East LA and Pacoima, the poorest areas of LA County, and they live in high gang territories. And um, they're not asking for no police. They're asking me to create policing that doesn't hunt them, that doesn't lock and put every male member of their family into a prison for life for doing nonviolent crime. Um, it, it, they want police who understand that they're policing an area that has been made into a desert and that, and where there's, there are no rungs for upward mobility, there are no jobs, there's no health care, that the police ought to be a force for helping the community get healthy. And if a healthy community doesn't have uh, the problems, or you know, young people only see power through gangs. So you want, you want that sociological transformation, that community transformation, at the same time you're transforming your police. And you want police who are trained to use weapons in the right way. Taking away their weapons and leaving them with the same mindset, I don't think solves the problem. Does that make sense? Yes, I, I would really value your perspective on the state of race relations right now in America as a prerequisite or uh, a key contextual factor in moving towards the transformation you're um, recommending for policing? I think that without, uh, I get the folks who took a hashtag, Black Lives Matter, and transformed it into an international movement demanding that Black Lives Matter. The, the, the drive of enslaved peoples on all continents, that factor is what has created this moment in time in our interracial uh, war and dialogue. This is in, in the United States. It's a struggle that long. And it has always been a, bi a multiracial struggle because this isn't South Africa. And as, as, as the minority, at least, at least in most states, the minority, it may be in Mississippi that African-Americans are the majority, but in most of the time, we certainly didn't have the power to transform. So the state of race relations today in the United States is in a place I've never seen it. Um, it's, it it's in a state, because for African-Americans, I, I told one of my white uh, partners in my law firm, I said, I said, you know, don't ask me. This isn't about people of color. This is the fourth major 
uh, national discussion that white Americans have been having about how much racism they're currently comfortable tolerating. At the beginning of the country, they did the compromise three-fifths of a man. The Civil War, they nominally ended slavery, reinstated it 12 years later at the end of Reconstruction and instituted and waved in the wave, the, the reign of white supremacy, the lynching, the, the black code, Jim Crow, and uh, the Civil Rights Revolution. They temporarily, once again, did some national laws. That revolution produced some progress. And then they spent the next 40 years undoing those laws and instituting systemic voter suppression. This is the fourth inflection on how much of white supremacy white Americans are going to condone and continue. So it's in flux. It's, I call it the fourth inflection over the redemption of, of white supremacy, where for the first time, the majority of white people in America are saying, okay, we have to make a choice. Oh, okay, we didn't know we were part of the choice. We didn't know that we were in this conversation. It's like watching whales discover they live in water. But now, you know, they're starting to get consciousness. And we'll see where it goes. So it's, it's at a point that I don't think any civil rights leaders recognize. Um, there's an awakening. Um, there's an awakening in many other tribes in, in America. But, but this, this, this is where we are. We're in an enormous fluctuation, turmoil. Uh, the young marchers, leaders who are around the globe have moved the tectonic plates. This is tectonic plate, tsunamic level change. It's seismic. Um, and we're still perfecting the union uh, as, as, as best we can. So the state of race relations in fluctuation, it's, it's like a continuation of the Civil War. I always say, they always say the war on terror is the longest war. No, the longest American war is the Civil War. And we are now fighting the last battles of the Civil War. It takes black people dying in droves for, that, for America to do what it should have done 100 years ago. It's just incredible if you look at the history of how you go four steps forward, three back, six forward, five back. It's, it's yeah, the arc of the universe is jagged, um, but I think it, uh, it's starting to bend in the right direction. So a short answer, I have no idea. <laughs> this is a unique moment of fluctuation, definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Connie Rice. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Here is Hal G. Lore of the Red Star Report with talking points addressing the question of why do we need California independence if we can just work to keep to get or keep the Democrats in power? This is talking points. So did anybody else get the email from the offices of Nancy Pelosi where she promises to fight on for abortion rights? If people just send her $15, which is obviously leading into tonight's talking point question. Why do we need independence if we can just work to get or keep Democrats in power? Look, I know Nancy Pelosi's email is your typical modern email boilerplate campaign contribution fundraising tool request sent out to the Democratic Party universe at regular intervals. And before anyone gets upset, yeah, I know the Republican Party does it too, because politics. But really, isn't she already rich enough from her donor base and massive political war chest to not need my sad little $15 donation? No? I mean, did she not basically just hand over the U.S. congressional gavel to that fascist Republican Bakersfield village idiot Kevin McCarthy, making it very doubtful any Roe versus Wade effort could even get a vote in the next two years? Particularly aggravating considering she was House Speaker with a Democratic majority in both houses and a Democrat in the White House. She had to know the Christian right had Roe v. Wade on the chopping block in the Supreme Court and still did nothing to set abortion rights in legal stone with federal legislation. Just like she didn't do with so many other issues when she actually had the power to do so. So why do we need independence if we can just work to get or keep Democrats in power? The California Independence Movement Handbook answer goes like this. 
why would we? It hasn't really worked out very well for us in the past, has it? Would forgetting about independence and just focusing on electing Democrats get Californians fair representation in the Senate, give Californians a fair share of federal spending and mass deportations? Return government land, stop the wars, stop offshore drilling, ensure LGBTQ rights, fix gun laws, restore voting rights, end the housing shortage, reduce income inequality, stop police violence, grant women equal pay, and the right to choose what's best for their own bodies, um, help veterans, stop fracking, create jobs, restore net neutrality, etc., 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 etc. In other words, all the things the federal government in general fails to get done for Californians decade after decade after decade, regardless of who's in power. Democrats at the federal level want your vote. They want your money and to maintain the status quo. But don't really seem to care any more about California or Californians' progressive values than the Republicans do. But that's the handbook answer, and it's still basically rings true. Because let's face it, at the federal level, all Democrats seem to really be interested in is keeping political arguments going to keep those donor donations flowing. So nothing can really happen except small incremental changes and some symbolic gestures that make for good television interviews, but effectively make for terrible government. So, again... Why do we need independence if we can just work to get and keep the Democrats in power? Well, the same Nancy Pelosi whose campaign has the gall to ask long-suffering Californians for donations when she should be on the verge of retirement is the same Nancy Pelosi who seems to have redefined the term liberal to mean that she's generally okay with people wanting their basic human and civil rights as long as they don't want peace environmental regulation, or universal health care, gun control, etc., 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 again. You know, all the things that recent votes and ongoing polling show that progressive Californians overwhelmingly want, but the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., with its illusion of centrism and large corporate donors, simply cannot or will not act on. The trickle-down effect of this is that California State House Democrats also live and work under these same federal paradigms. Because California State House Democrats know that to get that big corporate donor payday, they need to sell out their constituents and move up in any way they can to become federal government Democrats. So independence not only removes all threat of regressive federal legislation from politicians elected in states openly hostile to the best interests of California. California independence also removes the incentive for California politicians to run for U.S. federal office instead of focusing on the needs and demands of California and Californians. So, why do we need independence if we can just work to get and keep Democrats in power? Answer. Because California independence has the best chance to keep our nation's state politicians local, accessible, focused, and without America's corporate donors, maybe even honest. This is Talking Points. <laughs> The close of the seventh annual summit of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states last week provided the world with an opportunity to witness and evaluate the present state of relations among and between the governments of this region of more than 600 million people with the third largest economic organization on planet Earth. Don DeBar has more. Last week saw the close of the seventh summit of CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Journalist Stephen Sefton, based in Nicaragua, covered it. His piece is entitled Seventh CELAC Summit. 
between evasion and reality, and we spoke with him Wednesday to discuss it. Among many observers in, in the region, in Latin America and the Caribbean, there was kind of general dis- disappointment and perhaps some level of frustration as well with the um, declaration of the seventh summit of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, which took place on January the 24th last week, I think, um, in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And the, the on a positive note, you can we can kind of be glad that the event took place at all because of the, the 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 history over the last five, six, seven years, certainly since 2015, with the election of a right-wing government in Argentina and subsequently the election of uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing uh, 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 president of Brazil for um, until this year. Um, they they set, they deliberately set out to sabotage. Um, uh, Latin American and Caribbean unity and and the structures that um, express that move towards regional integration and union, political union, um, which was set up originally back in 2010, 2011, something like that, um, under the leadership, in, in, in fact, of uh, uh, Comandante Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, um, President Lula back then in, in, in his one of his presidencies for Brazil, um, uh, other leaders like Rafael um, Correa in Ecuador, um, the, the, the Cuba's leaders, uh, Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua. They, they were very. All these all these countries were pushing strongly for moves towards Latin American unity. And the subsequent uh, election of right wing leaders in, especially in um, Brazil, um, Ecuador, uh, uh, Chile, and and Argentina, set that back. Um, so. It, 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 it was very important for the event to have taken place at all, really. Um, the, 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 the frustration and disappointment comes from the, 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 the evasive character uh, of the declaration in many ways and the, the, hollow, the hollowness of the aspirations that it, um, that it mentions. Yeah, um, you're sort of peppering over some real contradictions with this that, that exist. And you're right. It's it's remarkable, at least, and, and and it's a good thing, at least, that there's enough of it staying together, even to paper it over with these hollow, you know, platitudes. Yeah. So, and and, and what are we talking about when we say that? I mean, for example, they they they. they, they uh, CELAC has long been declared and stands by its declaration of the region as a zone of peace. But despite that, there is a, an extensive presence of U.S. military bases across the continent. And there have been, they, and the statement um, makes a, a ritual genuflection towards um, criticizing intervention in the region, but there have been constant interventions of different kinds in the region by, in particular, of course, the United States and its and its NATO allies. Um, it, they, they talk about all, all these aspirations to uh, racial equality, to uh, gender equality and so on, in a context where uh, the governments of Argentina and Chile are engaging in what many regard as systematic harassment of the Mapuche indigenous groups. And in Brazil, um, there, there, there are still constant uh, attacks on the um, territories of indigenous people there. And in Colombia, despite the best efforts of current President Gustavo Petro, they're continuing um, uh, attacks and harassment of uh, Afro-descendants and indigenous peoples there. And we've just seen in Honduras, despite the uh, progressive government of Xiomara Castro, there's been yet another murder of a, a Garifuna uh, Afro-descendant um, community leader just over the last few days, added to uh, very other very serious um, incidents against Garifuna people in Honduras. So you can and then also a war on the left too, right? You see a war on the left in a lot of these countries too, where people are still disappearing here and there. Yeah, and, and and of course the the application of lawfare, the so the, the abuse of judicial powers and and criminal law to attack um, political leaders who are regarded as uh, problematic from the point of view of the regional right wing and their U.S. owners. 
and so and so for all these reasons and there are lots there, there are lots of very specific things that we could look at and for example um the 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 the, the declaration in points um i think 102 or 101 102 of the declaration uh, suggesting uh, uh, a very unsatisfactory uh, policy against Haiti, and that or the, it's very mealy mouthed. But if, you, if there's, it would be, it'd be perfectly reasonable to interpret it as the Black Alliance for Peace have done, and as um, activists in Haiti itself have done, as advocating support for possible military intervention by external powers in in Haiti right. on the basis of, you know, on the pretext of guaranteeing human rights as as you'd expect so so that that's worrying and and then the the, the failure can to, to overtly and explicitly condemn um the illegal sanctions against venezuela um the these these uh, coercive uh economic measures and also downright sabotage that has taken place um uh, obviously at the instigation or actually Probably even carried out by um, uh, forces of the, of the of the United States intelligence services, and the, and 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 also one thing that I thought was very telling is that whereas in earlier declarations by Salak in the uh, uh, soon after its um, formation, there there were strong denunciations of the presence of the U.S. base at Guantanamo both for territorial and for human rights reasons, and that is missing from the, the, the this current declaration. So there are all kinds of disappointing things to and observations to make about the declaration, and the overall event itself was marred by the failure of the Argentinian authorities to offer protection to for the participation of President Nicolas Maduro of uh, Venezuela because they couldn't ensure that he'd be um, protected against possible uh, provocative legal moves by the local right wing in Argentina on the basis of um, the US coercive measures and as you pointed out in an, an earlier conversation and the United States has even put a bounty on um, President right. Nicolas Maduro so right. he, he was unable to attend and I suspect that that's one of the reasons why um, the Mexican president didn't attend and he, the Mexican president also pushed strongly for a, a, a denunciation of the coup in Peru um, that isn't even mentioned. Peru isn't even mentioned in, in this uh, latest declaration. So there are all kinds of reasons to lament the, the, the failure of the declaration and the failure of the summit to be more forthright in defending um, regional integrity and regional independence, regional autonomy, which is what the declaration talks about, but it's not there, in fact. And so the from from my point of view, one of the the, the fundamental things is that there, there, there are deep conflicts between countries, both between blocks of countries like the Alba group of countries, Bolivia, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and some Caribbean island nations, one of which actually now has the pro-temporary presidency of CELAC, um, St. Vincent and the Grenadines under its Prime Minister, Ralph Gonzalez, and that's also positive, that's a positive development. Yes. Um, but you, you have the, the Alba group of countries being targeted by more right-wing countries and even social democrat leaders like Gabriel Boric of um, Chile. Um, but so apart from the, the, the kind of contest be between rival ideologies, you also have the underlying contradiction between countries that are, whose elites, whose ruling elites in countries like Peru, Chile, Argentina, even Brazil, um, and the, the, uh, talking about Lula's participation is it would pr take a whole other program. Right. But you have this uh, tension between um, these uh, uh, right-wing right leaders who tend to align with the United States right. and the fact of increasing and very, very important um, uh, participation in Latin America's economy, in Latin, in Latin America's uh, institutional development, in all kinds of ways, in, especially in, in terms of um, finance, for example. Various countries have uh, advanced swap agreements with China uh, for, for, for their currencies. 
And so you, you have this tension between China's increasing role in the region and the, the elites who ostensibly should be and are in many ways aligned with the United States, but recognize that they have to engage with China. Well, there's money so, in it for them, too. And, you know, they're, some of them are wise enough to realize that the opportunity that presents itself to their country with competition also presents itself to them personally uh, in terms of their own business interests. And we got to leave it there because we're out of time, Stephen. Thank you very much. And we will speak with you about this again next week. Okay. Thanks a million, Don. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK, Revel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights with a special focus on non-NATO media. European Union lawmakers are divided over supplying deadly weapons to Ukraine. Jerome Hughes reports from London. The decision to send German and American tanks to Ukraine is continuing to generate controversy. Many believe the move will prolong the war and there's concern as to how Russia might respond. However, at a parliamentary hearing on Tuesday, EU legislators were told the West should go even further. Russia is attacking uh, Ukraine from Russian territory, so obviously we should provide uh, the Ukrainians with long-range missiles, obviously. There are a lot of EU lawmakers who agree. Any delay uh, to supply Ukraine with needed uh, weaponry and ammunition is more lives lost on the battlefield. Some argue constantly supplying lethal weapons to Ukraine is foolish. We're prepared to risk nuclear war in order to continue this US-NATO proxy war. It is total madness. And this European Union and the European Parliament have lost the plot. They've lost the run of themselves. European Union taxpayers have provided 50 billion euro to Kiev since last March. What happens to all the money we send to Ukraine? Is it just disappearing into individuals' pockets? Even President Zelensky has had to admit there's a big problem with widespread corruption. A number of legislators would like to see less division within the EU. Austria and Hungary just decided we will not deliver weapons. Okay, it's their decision. But that shows already some hesitation or some breakup of, uh, of, of unity. Spanish MEP Javier Nart told his colleagues it's, quote, ridiculous to suggest Ukraine can win the war against Russia. For now, the US and Germany have ruled out providing fighter jets to Ukraine. Others, including France, have not. According to many analysts, the risk that the conflict could escalate further and spiral completely out of control has never been greater. The Grey Zone news outlet says it has obtained leaked documents from British military intelligence in which the UK admits that a so-called Kremlin narrative was actually the truth. The report says that despite the admission, the UK employed a psychological warfare unit to the Balkans to counter growing Russian influence there. The UK intelligence document leaked to the Grey Zone says, quote, Another barrier to combating disinformation is the fact that certain Kremlin-backed narratives are factually true. For example, one of Serbia's most prominent pro-Kremlin narratives relates to Russia's ongoing support for Belgrade in the Kosovo dispute, which is true. Responding to inconvenient truths, as opposed to pure propaganda, is naturally more problematic, end quote. RT spoke with the Grey Zone UK editor Kit Clarenberg, who says London's main tactic to undermine Russian influence around the world is to demonize Moscow. That particular excerpt is from a file to talking, uh, which uh, an internal Foreign Office file, which discusses the uh, difficulties of combating Russian disinformation in this context. In order to, um, you know, insidiously infiltrate state institutions, uh, the British need to undermine um, uh, Russian quote-unquote influence, and they need to demonise Moscow in the eyes of, of the local population. The leak implies that London is aware of some of what they call Russian narratives, despite calling them factually true. What does that suggest about the agenda as a whole? About a year ago, I came into possession of some documents showing that London had been involved in running the Bosnian government's COVID communications campaign, which is very, very odd. 
Um, this was done in total secret. It's never been publicized before. It's never been advertised that London was doing this. But since the start of the war in Ukraine, those documents took on a far more sinister dimension. The British soldiers have been deployed to the streets of Sarajevo, among them counter disinformation experts. Um, you know, quite why they're there I, I, it isn't clear. But it just struck me that the same mechanisms and the same tactics that were used by the British government at home and clearly abroad to compel citizens to comply with coronavirus restrictions which was, you know, terrifying people in submission, um, were now being applied again um, to ramp up, uh, you know, the false, false threat of, of Russian aggression, and therefore justify their um, military deployment. That was Kit Clarenberg, UK editor for the Grey Zone. South Koreans are questioning U.S.-led alliances and say no to weapons for Ukraine. Frank Smith reports from Seoul. U.S. Secretary of State Lloyd Austin visited South Korea this week to reassure officials here that Washington will remain committed to the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Uh, the U.S. commitment uh, to the defense of Korea is ironclad. You heard, heard us say that a number of times, but that's just not a slogan. It is what, what we're all about. That commitment is ironclad. And our extended deterrence is at the heart of that commitment. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol restarted large-scale joint military exercises with the U.S. last year. Although the U.S. reportedly deployed its so-called strategic assets, weapons capable of delivering nuclear bombs, the South Korean leader wants more American firepower at his disposal. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has repeatedly suggested the need for the U.S. to make a stronger demonstration of extended deterrence, its nuclear umbrella. And the South Korean public has grown skeptical of the U.S. alliance, with a majority now advocating that South Korea develop its own nuclear weapons. The U.S. has also pressured South Korea for greater cooperation with Japan in participation in joint drills. Peace advocates find such a trilateral alliance worrisome. If the South Korea-U.S. and South Korea-U.S.-Japan alliances are established through cooperative military exercises, the South Korean military will now defend Japan and the U.S. mainland in the Pacific, not South Korea. South Korea will then be reduced to an outpost to protect the United States and Japan. Meanwhile, earlier this week, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg visited South Korea to encourage Seoul to send weapons directly to Ukraine. South Korea is exporting weapons to countries that are sending their own military supplies to Ukraine, but has so far refused to provide Kiev with direct military aid. While the West keeps pushing South Africa to go green, the country is struggling with an acute energy crisis and is considering declaring a national state of disaster in response. RT Africa correspondent Karabolat Latla reports. It's been a really frail over the last six months in particular. Towards the end of last year, we had over 200 days of power cuts which were subsequent which followed each other and without any respite this year has been the same people here are talking about an entire grid collapse that would mean that the country would need a couple of weeks at least to restart the energy supply stream south africa is not alone here it is also uh, in partnership with the united states the united kingdom the eu Germany and France over something called the Just Energy Transition Partnership. Now that is how South Africa is trying to map its way out of its reliance on fossil fuels and making its way into greener energy spaces. These two things in this country are seen as conflicting, that we are essentially giving up our own coal, which we have in copious amounts. And we are going to rely on the sun and on water and on wind, which is not necessarily in that much of abundance in this country. But that did not stop Janet Yellen, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, who, along with many of her American counterparts, have been making a beeline for the African continent. As you know, South Africa is the first country with a just energy transition partnership, or JETP, 
to which the United States was proud to commit as a partner. Janet Yellen is representing only the interest that we have seen so fervorfully from the West. And they have been pushing this green agenda not only on South Africa, but on the continent as a whole. You almost feel like a guinea pig when you're watching the, the slew of European leaders who come to the continent looking for the same fossil fuel, claiming that they're doing it in the name of energy security, because I guess that trumps everything. But we are under pressure. To, to not only conform, but to lead in this green energy revolution. And one can only wonder how far we can go when we can't even have a consistent supply of electricity using our very own coal. And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Paulina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Dick Plactigan is a retired Los Angeles city planner who reports on local planning issues for City Watch LA. And his current Planning Watch column for City Watch LA and the LA Progressive exposes two developing giveaways that hide behind the claim that deregulation solves the housing crisis and why residential upzoning fails to reduce homelessness. Increases in L.A.'s homeless population appeared despite two statewide California laws whose declared purpose was to increase overall housing supply. Laws adopted between 2017 and 2022 allow California homeowners to build a senior accessory dwelling unit, ADU, in their backyard, add a junior ADU to their house, and install a small backyard house on wheels. The Los Angeles Times also published local data on accessory dwelling units, which it called an upzoning success story. Between 2017 to January 2023, L.A. City's Hall issued 25,881 ADU building permits, 13,640, average of 2,273 per year, of which eventually received certificates of occupancy. In 2020, the Bureau of Census reported that the Los Angeles had 1,514,000 houses and apartments. By this measure, the 2,273 ADUs completed year per year comprise 1.15% of LA's housing stock. As for information on how many ADUs were rented to low-income tenants, there is no data. The claim that ADUs reduce homelessness is not supported by any facts. The second part of this housing policy alchemy is Senate Bill 9. In effect, since January 1, 2022, it permits four apartments on an all-single-family zone lots in California. With ample support from big real estate and high-tech, the state Senate and Assembly adopted this bipartisan legislation in September 2021. In its first year, 2022, this upzoning law was a total dud, as predicted by 20, in 2019 by UCLA planning professor Michael Storper. Professor Storper's assessment was recently confirmed by UC Berkeley's industry-funded Turner Center. Its report on Senate Bill 9's first year documented that this legislation totally failed in 13 large California cities, including Los Angeles, San Diego, San Jose, Long Beach, and San Francisco. In 2022, they had 282 Senate Bill 9 applications approved and approved 53. As for completed projects rented to low-income tenants, the Turner Center did not collect any data. The claim that ADUs reduce homelessness is not supported by any facts. If the real purpose of ADUs and SB9 duplexes and fourplexes was to build low-price housing for the potential homeless, the think tanks lobbying groups, researchers, and corporate media would examine the real causes of the housing crisis, which are the stagnation of wages made worse by inflation, 
the massive run-up of housing prices and rents, the termination of public housing programs, and the loss of existing low-priced housing. Thank you, Platkin, for this report. And now, the calendar. What it is, KPOK? And you know I'm Angela Birdsong. And here is your Rebel Alliance News Community calendar tips. The 31st Pan-African Film Festival will take place during Black History Month in Los Angeles, February 9th to the 20th at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills Theater with the Black Fine Arts Festival at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. For more information, visit paff.org for the largest Black History Month celebration in America. Attention parents, you can get free help with homework for your Los Angeles Unified School District high school students with one-to-one homework help, tutoring, and test prep through tutor.com. The service is available 24-7 in a wide variety of subjects. Visit LA Unified School District on tutor.com for more information. National Lawyers Guild of Los Angeles is hosting Skid Row Homeless Citation Clinics Legal Clinics the first Wednesday of every month, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Los Angeles Community Action Network, 838 East 6th Street in Los Angeles. Law student and law, law student and attorney volunteers are needed. More info, go to nlg-la.org. Join Black Women for Wellness, Kitchen Divas' new four-week mini-series, Cook With Me, featuring Chef Kendra at Swift Cafe. Every Monday, you will create plant-forward dishes on Zoom. For more information on Black Women for Wellness and to RSVP, go to bwwla.org or call 323-290-5955. Cinemoms is hosting a virtual breastfeeding support circle every first and third Thursdays at 10.30 a.m. Register at cinemoms.org for the Zoom link. Althea Moses Fitness Club, the first Saturday of every month, 9 to 10 a.m. at Edward Vincent Jr. Park in Inglewood in front of the tennis courts. For more information about this Saturday, February 4th, call 310 740 1157. Meet Impu Kamut for weekly Casa Tai Chi Shawan sessions on Zoom Tuesdays and Fridays at 8.30 a.m. Saturdays live in Lamert Park, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. For more information, call 213-447-7700. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to NAMIUrbanLA.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions, and you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. We're excited to bring back progressive news to Southern California and connect with the local community. If you want to become part of our news show or if you have story ideas or comments, please email us at news at kpfk.org. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, Tandi Sizwe Shimarenga, Polina Nasiliev, Don DeBar, Dick Plackkin, the Red Star Report, and all Rebel Alliance News contributors. We hope you will join us again tomorrow at 6 p.m. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. I'm Angela Birdsong, and coming up next is Feminist Magazine. Maybe you've been listening to Pacifica and KPFK for years, even decades, and you appreciate how important KPFK is in your life. If you're a forward-thinking donor who wants future generations to benefit from KPFK's independent journalism and unhindered creativity, then join KPFK's Legacy Circle and include KPFK in your will or living trust. For details, visit our website at kpfk.org, and thank you for considering KPFK in your future gift-giving plans.
With the new car business down right now, you might think that we don't need your vehicle donation. However, the market for donated vehicles is very strong. Please donate your old car, truck, RV, or motorcycle to us at 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. Or online at kpfk.org. We'll take care of everything, and you'll help support the quality programming you hear on KPFK. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO. That's 877-KPFK-AUTO. 